It's midnight in America, and this is the Hour of Decision. My name is Lou Moore, and welcome to our show tonight. We're pretty excited, very excited, about our guest, J.R. Nyquist. Jeff has written a number of books, books that are not on the superficial level, books that get to the root of the things and the heart of the matter. Uh, he's written for World Net Daily, the Epic Times, a number of publications, and he has several books available on Amazon, uh, which you're encouraged to take a look at when we're done here. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, does America have any enemies right now? Oh, yes. The idea that one can live life without enemies is kind of naive, and certainly a great power like the United States, a great country, is going to have enemies. And, and the big problem is, is that our liberal ideology that has prevailed in America for the last couple hundred years, it, it kind of suggests that, well, if everybody just learns to trade and do business, there's no need for any enmity, as if, if everyone can make money, you know, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. If we all just do some, you know, the right kind of economics, we're all going to uh, get richer, so why spoil it with a war? That is a liberal presumption. That is not the presumption of different societies and different states. Uh, there are there are states that believe, like China and Russia, in a zero-sum game where one side loses and the other wins by the loss of the other. And it doesn't matter what the cost is economically. It matters who wins, who dominates. Sure. And I think you're identifying one problem that I see in American society <clears throat> is this classical liberalism idea or whatever, however you want to describe it, is that trade will solve these problems, sitting down in some international forum will solve problems be, uh, between us. But the, uh, the other issue I see is people who are very aware of the fact that we have enemies, but they don't really have the right idea of who our real enemies are and who they aren't. No, they're obscured by ideology. See, economics... You know, the wealth of nations and, uh, and Adam Smith and the Austrian School of Economics is all fine and good, but when you turn it into a political ideology, you have a problem. Because ideology is not the whole reality. Ideology is, uh, if you just adopt these certain principles, everything will be okay, and you're on the right side of history. Well, that's not actually the way history reads. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so what we have is people who believe that anyone who doesn't believe like them, that doesn't share their liberal ideology or their libertarian ideology, is, you know, bad and have to be brought to book. And ironically, these same people will give Putin a pass. They'll describe communist China as a capitalist country, not realizing that the distinct that all distinctions are not economic distinctions, that there are political and religious distinctions, that there's dis military realities, and that they don't factor those in to their uh, one-sided, economically-oriented ideology. Sure, sure. So you mentioned Mr. Putin. You should get right down to it in this conversation, Jeff. Over the last 75, 80 years, a little longer than that, I guess, who has been our greatest enemy, and what and what is the status of that relationship now? Well, the communist movement, uh, as it was taken over and energized by Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, real name Vladimir Ulanov, when he took over Russia in 1917, that movement has grown. It's metastasized like a cancer across the globe, and it it has the ability to to reinvent itself periodically. And it has done so since the time of Lenin. It, it, it finds new ways to describe itself. It deceives its enemy at every turn. And it even has removed the word communism from the top label in order to advance more quickly because that, that old name got a bad rap, right? A bad reputation. And so, and they're very conscious of what holds them back. And they're very much into strategy, the communists. And they're into infiltration of society, and they're into sociology and polit politics. And so they're into using sophisticated psychological social science ideas to transform society on every dimension. So you could say that normal, organic Western society, liberal society, uh, Christian civilization, however you want to describe it, 
has been under attack on all levels, in education, in religion, they've infiltrated the churches, in the government, in politics, in science, they've created fake science. You look at global warming, the communists and the Soviet Union were behind that, just like global winter. The New York Times recently admitted that the same math used in uh, nuclear winter, sorry, nuclear winter theory is the, what's used in global warming theory. Well, people don't realize one of the chief scientists involved in creating that, a Soviet scientist, basically clandestinely defected and said, hey, Andropov and the KGB put us up to making this. It's not real nuclear winter. They just want to stop you from deploying the Pershing missiles in Europe. This is what Reagan was president in the 80s. And in a late March of 1985, the same Soviet scientist was kidnapped and taken to the Soviet embassy in Madrid. He was kidnapped at a scientific conference in Spain. Never to be seen again, by the way. So, you know, we don't we don't fully understand. There hasn't been a proper investigation of the clandestine operations and motivations and operatives that have put all these fake narratives before us. You know, the JFK assassination conspiracy theories, the 9-11 was an inside job. I mean, you, you when you trace the people who promote these things, you're going to find that they have connections to Russia. So you're keying in on Russia, Jeff. You mentioned Putin. I think most Americans are still walking around thinking that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War, that we triumphed economically primarily over them. They couldn't keep up with the military buildup that Reagan undertook, and that that ended. And then, you know, everything was okay, except Putin's getting a little bit autocratic or something. So let's just get right to that. And then there's a a hundred other things we could we could talk yeah. about well, from what you're now saying. Who has, yeah, now who has the military buildup? I mean, right now the United States has not built a nuclear weapon since 1992. We haven't tested a nuclear weapon since September 1992. We literally do not know if any of our nuclear weapons work. Of the last five tests of our main, you know, land-based ballistic missile system, the Minuteman III, half of the tests have failed over the last five years. Three of this, the last six tests have failed. The missile did not reach its target. And our, so our nuclear warheads are of, uh, look, it, as far back as you, people can look this up, November of 2008, Defense Secretary Robert Gates said, our nuclear weapons are rapidly approaching the end of their shelf life. We have to have the reliable nuclear warhead program. The Bush administration tried to pass it through Congress in 2007. It was stopped in the U.S. Senate. And so he was trying to push it. And of course, Defense Secretary Gates stayed on for Obama and he was he kept pestering Obama. You have to do something about our nuclear arsenal. Obama eventually told him to shut up. I don't want to hear about it again. And then Congress in Obama's second term forced a kind of program onto him that would take like 30 years or something. They, 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 they talked about spending a trillion dollars, but a trillion dollars over 30 years is not very much money per year, right? But so supposedly, and we had testimony before Congress of the head of the Strategic Command, uh, Admiral Richard, in February of 2020, saying that if in three years we do not, you know, you do, Congress does not intervene to do something, our nuclear arsenal will be unreliable in three years, which is, it's 2023 now. It's past February 2023. Our nuclear arsenal, according to the head of the Strategic Command in 2020, is unreliable. And that means we don't know if the nuclear warheads work. And and he's, and we would not, he said in that testimony, have a new nuclear warhead till 2029. Now, there's been talk of a tactical warhead coming out uh, last year, and I believe it was April, against the advice of Admiral Richard, who was about to retire. Biden clipped two nuclear warhead projects, just cut them out. Biden is the most anti-nuclear weapon administration to exist in the history of the United States. Oh, so that's the name of that group, Jeff, that financed him particularly in his first run for the Senate, the Center for a Livable World. Yeah, I've been alignment. I know you have yeah. about that. Well, not only that, but, you know, the, the famous Soviet agent, Armin Hammer, who knew Lenin personally, basically put Biden in the Senate. He he was financing the campaigns of senators and people running for the Senate in small states like Tennessee and Delaware. 
He supported Al Gore Sr. and Jr. and made them wealthy, but he supported Biden into the Senate. So, and of course, you read the Hammer file, Ivor J. J. Epstein, which he got documents from uh, European intelligence services, as I recall, the German and the French during the interwar period, showing that Armand Hammer was a Soviet agent operating front companies in Berlin and Paris. So when he comes to the United States, is he stopped being a Soviet agent? No, of course not. Armand Hammer was a Soviet agent, yeah. Uh, pardon me, I just was going to say how many... People have won the Lead and Peace Prize that are not some form of Soviet agent. Right. Armand Hammer. Yeah. Well, of course, Hammer's father was one of the founding members of the Communist Party USA. Sure. So, Jeff, let's, if we can, let's put a little more context into this. We obviously have a problem with our nuclear readiness. We have a problem with our military readiness in general, according to a report that came out in Congress. I believe it was 2019. Uh, by somebody I used to work with, Adam Smith, I think was the chairman of that committee from Washington State that put out this report, said we could no longer fight, uh, rely, we're, we're no longer reliable to fight on two fronts, which is a little scary looking at how many fronts are developing right now. But let's go, let's go back. So a lot of Americans, most Americans think Reagan won the Cold War or something happened that caused the Cold War to be over and that we won. But what actually happened? Well, the devil's in the details. I, I can just tell you how I kind of discovered this. And see, very smart people all over the place miss this because they didn't do the reading. They didn't know the data, right? If you don't have the information, you can't form a proper opinion. So I was in graduate school in 1987, 88, and I was looking at the defector literature I actually was studying under Rain Tagapera, and I was going through the defector literature and writing reports on different books written by defectors, mostly intelligence defectors. And I was—I had read Anatoly Galitsyn was a KGB defector, whose book I'd read in '85 when it came out, and I'd kind of dismissed it. And I was reading defector Jan Shana, the highest, probably politically, the highest level sort of politician. Uh, he was a general, but he was the a, a commissar in the Czech army, the Czechoslovak communist army. And he had defected in 1968. And he had a 1982 book called We Will Bury You. And I, I, he has, on starting on page 100 of the book, he talks about the long-range strategy that the Soviets and the communist bloc had, the bloc long-range policy, it's sometimes called. And he, he, he said in there that they had a plan to fake the collapse of the Warsaw Pact. Now, I'm, I'm reading this. Gorbachev has just come into power in Russia a couple of years before. And I'm reading this and I'm going, wait a minute, I've read this before. And then I realized it's in Galitzin. Galitzin's saying they were going to collapse the communist bloc in his book. And he has much more detail on it than, than Shana did. Okay, I'm going to stop you just for a second because I want to make sure the people listening to this have a little bit more background about Anatoly Galitzin. So can you just describe briefly who he was and why we should pay should always pay attention to things? That... Yeah, Galitzin has been, by the way, you're going to read a lot of negative things about him because the, the, these, the people have tried to smear him and destroy him for obvious reasons. Because if you are fighting the communists, you are going to be at a handicap because they've infiltrated everywhere as if you go back to the 1940s and 50s in the Senate and the House hearings, House and American Activities Committee and the Senate Security Committee. So you're gonna know that if, if they had, they, had they, they got in the 1950s 20,000 people out of the US government because they basically could not be trusted. They had communist affiliations. I mean, that's how many, I mean, if you can imagine that many people in the government having to, to say bye-bye because they were no, of course, they came flooding back into government in the 60s and imagine what it is now. So just that's a context to understand. So Galitzin was a major in the KGB. He had worked in Vienna previously. He was in counterintelligence, which is sort of the core. Uh, that is the core that fights the other intelligence service that tries to penetrate them, that tries to prevent their own service from being penetrated. And so they're involved in the War of the Moles. And of course, he was recalled to Moscow. He was part of, of think tanks there in Moscow in the late 50s when they were reorganizing the KGB under General Alexander Shelepin. Iron Shurik was his nickname. He was the head of the KGB after they had re removed Ivan Serov. Serov went over to become head of the uh, GRU. 
And and so then you had this reorganization. And of course, what was this reorganization of the KGB all about? Golitsyn said that they were reorganizing for a long-range deception strategy. And of course, he didn't have all the details, but he he gathered enough that he knew. He'd heard a lecture by Shelopin saying that they were planning a false split with a communist country because the West had been so helpful to Tito. Once Tito split with Stalin, they thought, well, let's do a fake split and the West will come in and help a country. And so what was the country they would have the fake split with? And this lecture was given in 1959. Well, it would be China. And of course, the following year, December of 1960s, when the Sino-Soviet split began officially, when they started arguing supposedly. And so Galitsyn determined that the what it was all about, they had to reorganize the KGB so that they could hide the fact that they were planning a false liberal, liberalization that would take three or four decades to accomplish, to get to set up, and they would have a false liberalizing leader. So after Galitzin's defection, he worked on this. And of course, there was a battle over him and over related things in the CIA, which James Angleton championed, the famous head of the CIA counterintelligence staff, from 1954 to 1974, uh, they fought over Galitzin, and Angleton supported Galitzin and believed that Galitzin had something important to say. And this was mocked by various administrators within the CIA as the monster plot. Well, he believes in this monster plot. There's this giant conspiracy. Well, Galitzin worked on a book, almost certainly he worked on it with Angleton and other members of the CIA counterintelligence staff after it was broken up because thanks to Seymour Hirsch, uh, Angleton was fired from the CIA by by uh, uh, Colby, CIA Director Colby. And the CIA staff and the brain of the CIA was basically dissolved. Everything it knew about the mind of the enemy was basically liquidated. And, and this suggests the CIA itself was penetrated. Galitzin talked about that the CIA had been penetrated. Angleton knew it was penetrated. He tested that theory by feeding false information that the, he would see whether the KGB picked it up and they would pick it up. But he could never isolate it. Was, there had to be multiple moles to disguise the fact that he couldn't isolate who was doing it. Sure. Well, Jeff, I, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. So isn't it also true that Galitzin kind of got caught up in the long-standing and constant rivalry between the CIA and the FBI. I'm thinking of that book, Wedge. I know. A Wedge by Riebling. Yes. Riebling's book, Riebling, to his great credit, gives Galitzin credit that no one else does because everywhere you're going to read, oh, Galitzin made these fake predictions and had the monster plot. Riebling went through, Galitzin wrote a book and that came out in 1984 called New Lies for Old. And it may be the most important defector book ever written. Because, okay, 1984, he predicted that the that they would free people from the gulag, that the Communist Party would give up power in the Soviet Union, that the Berlin Wall might go down, that the different East Bloc countries would leave the Warsaw Pact, right? The same kind of thing that Jan Shana alluded to as a long-range strategy. He went into detail. He made 140 falsifiable predictions. And by 1994, all... Uh, 93, almost 94% of his predictions had come true. Now, that is a that is not, you can't account for that by mistake, by accident. So you oh, can't no. account for that by accident. I remember, Jeff, in 86, I went into a bookstore run by an organization that had bookstores all over the country that was ostensibly anti-communist. And I bought this book. I thought, boy, this is interesting. And I read it. And then, like you, I kind of... Uh, that went on to other things. And then, all, you know, the wall was coming down. And this was now when Bush was in office. All these dramatic things were happening. And then I went, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. I mean, that book back. Yeah. You know, it's, I think you're going to pay hundreds of dollars for a used copy of New Lies for Old now because it's really coveted. But I, I looked through the literature. I found also that there were references by Zadislav Bittman to a long-range deception strategy and false liberalization. Also found Robert Bukhar, who had, was a cinematographer working in the office of the Czech president, he knew about the coming liberalization. Others I spoke to, a, de, a defector from the Soviet Union from Moldova, whose name I can't use, who was in physical danger of his life, knew all kinds of things about it, had been told the KGB and the GRU were trying to recruit him because of his perfect day. He spoke English without an accent. 
he taught himself when he was a teenager using records, you know, old, old style uh, photograph records. So, you know, it, the thing is when you, and then when you look at the collapse of all well, the collapse of the Soviet Union, all right, this is, gets complicated. So Galitsyn knows there's a strategy. So does Shana about collapsing the Warsaw Pact. So what actually happened? They tried to execute their strategy and it didn't like all plans. This, like von Moltke said, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So a lot of things did work out. Some things did work out. So, for example, they they wanted to reunify Germany, the Soviets. This is what Gorbachev was doing in uh, back in, in 1989 and 90. But they believed that their agents, they had 100,000 100, agents in West Germany, and they believed that the United Germany would be under Soviet control. And that didn't work out because of things that Helmut Kohl did, the chancellor of Germany at the time. So part, that part of the plan backfired with very serious repercussions on the Soviet Union and for Gorbachev. But if you, if you look, there's, there's every one of the revolutions in Eastern Europe are equivocal. So you've got, it has come out that in, in you know, solidarity in Poland, you had the, the fighting solidarity people coming out saying that the, head of, the, the chief you know, spokesman for solidarity there was a Soviet agent. Or was it Please, Nancy, just for a second, because I just want to make sure the audience has a little context for this. So uh, Solidarity was the group that with Lech Walensa and whatnot that was the leadership. Yeah, Walensa, yeah. And I, I spoke, yeah, he led Solidarity and supposedly caused Poland to, the communists to fall from power in Poland. But as okay, but I, I, want, I just want to make sure we get one other point across. So in, in World War II, at the end of World War II, they had the Nuremberg trials and whatever you think about everything that went on there. Nazis were not still in office throughout Germany. Uh, the, the imperial Japanese, they kept the emperor, but the, the, the structure in Japan was not pretty much the same after the war as it was before the war, obviously. But in the case of Russia or the Soviet Union and in the case of the satellite nations, which is what you're starting to go into, it wasn't that way. So please continue. But he, one of the things, yeah, one of the things Galitzin said was that the communists prepared structures. They prepared controlled anti-communist movements in the uh, different Eastern Bloc countries, like Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia. I've I've talked to members of Charter 77 who told me the communists controlled the organization. Oh. And in fact, if you go to Poland, fighting solidarity people said we had to leave solidarity. We, we solidarity was originally a good thing. And the Communist Party ordered its people to infiltrate it and take it over. See, if you create an anti-communist organization that's effective, the communists will order their people to infiltrate it immediately, and they'll come flooding in. And they'll pretend to be as conservative or anti-communist as you and me, but and you won't be able to... How can you tell the difference? They they just will mimic you. They they just... They mirror image you, and, and then you think you're... Well, they're one of us, you know, but they're not. And so this happened in Poland to solidarity. That's why fighting solidarity formed. So, and this is why there's been a struggle in Poland ever since. And and of course the 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 party that just won the elections in in Poland uh, and the Social Democrats and their coalition is basically has been working with the Russians all along. Where the party that lost power was anti-Russian and anti-communist. Sure. You know. So you, now, you got. When, you, when, I'm yeah. going to talk over you. Excuse me, but I just want to get this out too. In, in your book, The Origins of the Fourth World War, which I'm happy to note is no longer costing $500 on Amazon. I guess there's been another press run on that book. No, no, unless somebody's pirating it. Uh, it looked like it was about 15 bucks to, to buy a new copy. have to double check that. But anyway. Um, I sell them for 25 you know, so 15 bucks on Amazon. I'd have to check that out. But I, 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 I checked that. It might be some bookstore that doesn't know doesn't know what they could get for it. But but anyway, uh, because the book has is, is been out of print for a long time. Yeah, I thought. But, the, but yeah. we have a list. That, we got off on that. But in that book, you have a list just of the heads of state of these countries like Kazakhstan and yeah. different countries that were in the USSR or were the buffer states or whatever well, you it, they call it, them. And they were all, they're all still communists. Yeah, there's a couple exceptions to the 15 Soviet republics and, and a, a couple shady areas, but in the large part, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, the book, I was using information from the 90s because the book was published and first published in 98. Uh, that's Origins of the Fourth World War. That's the book we're talking about, the book that I wrote about this. 
And of course, I, I wrote the book. I started writing the book before the collapse of the Soviet Union because I believed that the collapse, I came to believe from studying Galitzin and Shana and the defector literature that there was a planned collapse of communism, that it would take everybody. And that's why I started writing the book in 87, in August of 87. And I thought somebody needed to start working on it then. And of course, I was taken aback because I thought most conservative anti-communists would be savvy enough to know about Galitzin's book and to know that that they can't could not trust changes in the Eastern Bloc. And yet we saw, but first and foremost, we saw William F. Buckley denouncing Galitzin, denouncing Angleton very publicly and embracing the collapse of the Soviet Union. And William F. Buckley also was all about handing the Panama Canal over supposedly to the Panamanians, which went right into the arms of the communist Chinese. But yeah, but yeah. Buckley, uh, he went international as big time. Yeah, Buckley, Buckley's curious. And of course, his, you know, the, the, the biography of him, officially, official biography of him is written basically by a communist, the patron saint, you know, William F. Buckley, patron saint of the conservatives. Why would you give somebody of the far, far left you know, your papers and, and access so they could write your biography. I don't understand. There's a lot of things about conservatism that troubles me, about American conservatism, both libertarian yeah. and traditionally, yeah. Yep, yep. So anyway, Jeff, keeping the thread here, so the Soviets, known for disinformation, having whole bureaus dedicated to nothing but disinformation, yeah. had the audacity, uh, audacity to spread a, a huge lie to the world that there had been some kind of collapse. Yeah. But so so what happened during that transition? There was Yeltsin, and for, uh, you know, first there was yeah. Khrushchev, who never, ever admitted to the Soviet Union doing anything wrong, even though he was supposed to be such a great guy. But then Yeltsin came in, then Putin. So can you kind of talk about this transition? I mean, what? Well, yeah. I mean, you had the transition, of course, in Romania and Czechia. I should talk about the Velvet Revolution. We have testimony, and it's on film, of former STB agents saying the orders to to create the Velvet Revolution came from Moscow. And it was the, the dead student and everything that they celebrate every year was faked. Now, now, when was this Velvet Revolution and where was it? In 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down. Oh, the Berlin Wall came down, you had coincidentally revolutions in Poland, Czechia, Romania, and then the most dramatic one was the fall of Ceausescu in Romania. And there was a book called The Hole in the Flag by Andrei Kudrescu, in which he, he relates how he's one of the first, he's a Romanian defector, he's a cultural defector. He, he worked for Radio Liberty, Voice of America, He's one of the first people to come into Romania when Ceausescu had just fallen. And he ends up in Transylvania, in the small Transylvanian town where the revolution against him him uh, started, against Ceausescu started. And he can't sleep and he's out and he starts drinking with a Russian journalist from TASS who arrived with, I don't know, 20 other journalists in earlier in December before this revolution even started. And he looks at this guy and he goes, wait a minute. This out-of-the-way, nowhere place in Transylvania, all these Russian tasks, and you know, tasks is just another word for KGB, right? Because most task correspondents, they work directly with the uh, Soviet intelligence services. You all came out here before there was a revolution against Ceausescu. So he finds out that the revolution in Romania was started by Soviet agents and, and you know, basically conducted on orders of the Soviet Union just as Robert Bukhar's sources in the STB publicly came out later and stated the revolution in Czechoslovakia was ordered from Moscow. We know the sequences in the unification of Germany. It was all done by Gorbachev with George W. Bush's mouth hanging open going, he's giving away what? You know, and, and so on it goes for Bulgaria and for, and yet the people who came to power were that controlled opposition under communist control. And so Boris Yeltsin in Russia, who was a candidate Politburo member, right? He was from Siberia. Drunken Boris, if you remember him, he came forward to be the hero of, he was going to bring democracy to Russia and break up the Soviet Union into its constituent republics. And of course, what did he do? In reality, his drunken behavior and his sinking the economy in, in, in the worst possible situation discredited 
and liberalism discredited democracy and capitalism in the eyes of the Russian public for a whole generation or more. Sure, sure. And that, I think, was intentional. I have no doubt. And then, of course, oh, does Yeltsin appoint to succeed him? The head of the KGB, or what's called the uh, the FSB, which was Vladimir Putin, who he makes prime minister first in August of 1999, and then at the end of 1999, makes him president, just appoints him. Of course, he runs for president and gets elected, but we know what kind of president he is. Now, you got all these stories about how Putin was really a Democrat, and he was really going to work with the West, and it's our fault. We expanded NATO and we ruined it. Now, they wanted us to expand NATO. They did everything they could to lure us on because they had NATO so thoroughly infiltrated, it didn't really matter to them. They they had to look at the German chancellors since the Berlin Wall came down. So you have a, a bunch of scandals that catch Helmut Kohl up. He goes out and who comes in but the Social Democrat Schroeder. And Schroeder, I mean, when he leaves office, he works for Gazprom. He, he basically becomes an employee of the Russian gas company. And he's pushing Russian gas dependence of Germany and a German-Russian kind of economic alliance. And then you have Angela Merkel from East Germany, an East German youth communist leader trained in the Soviet Union. And she's suddenly a, you know, the head of the Christian Democratic Party, the conservative party in Germany. Jeff, I don't know, I, and I'm, excuse me, I just want to mention this. I don't know if you saw this article just a couple of days ago in the Wall Street Journal. They were going through the readiness of these various other countries and NATO. I mean, my God, Germany has like two days worth of ammunition. There were well, they, 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 they said, you know, between van der Leyen and, and Merkel and the others, van der Leyen is now one of the top NATO officials or top EU officials, sorry, was the defense minister of Germany, just stripped up bare. I mean, under her tenure, you would see news stories of none of the U-boats work. You know, so the German Germany doesn't have a functioning U-boat. The tank regiment is not deployable. You know, it's it's or tank brigade, I should say rather. So it's it's their German military is a joke, and you don't have much in the Baltic states. And Poland, you know, is try was trying to double the size of its military. And in this recent political campaign, the generals came out and said, "Oh, we don't need a bigger military." And so they they when the you know, when the parties changed, when the, the anti-communist, anti-Russian party lost power in Poland, you can bet they're not doubling the size of their military anymore. And, and of course, you had this uprising in Ukraine. This is where the Russians had the real problem. And a disgruntled KGB officer told me years ago, Ukraine is the Achilles heel of this whole Russian state formation. Sure. And, sure. and of course, it has been. But yeah, sure. we're, we're pulling the rug out from under that right now. You can bet the Germany, the U.S., it's all, it's a done deal now. So, and and I want to talk to you. I'm hoping that we have like three of these encounters, Jeff, if you're up for that. But, and I want to get into depth in about these flashpoints that we have in the world today, including Ukraine. But what I want to do right now is we're hearing a lot about Putin. He's an autocrat, but, you know, he's against the transgender agenda. He's a big backer of the, uh, of the Orthodox Church and a good Christian now and all this. Can you talk just a little bit about his record as the leader of Russia uh, after this time with Yeltsin? After the Yeah, well, the, for... right after Putin came into power and, you know, you're trying to figure out what you think about the guy. I was on, I was, I flew, I think it was January of 2000. I flew to Texas to do this TV show. And lo and behold, they found my, my friend, the defector, Colonel Stanislav Lunev is on the show. He's on the show by phone. And when he comes on, I say hi. And, you know, the audience is kind of listening. And, and it's before we're actually taping the show. And but they're kind of surprised that I, you know, they don't know who I am, but I know him. And he, I asked him about what he thought of Putin. And he says, no, he's a, he's a true believing communist. Now, now, Stan was from Leningrad or St. Petersburg, where Putin was from. And so I don't know how he knew his background, but it's a town that people know each other when they're in intelligence work. So, and his, and of course, uh, Stan Luna's father ended up in the KGB after being in the army. So Stan had these connections. So he said that Putin was a true believing communist. And of course, when Putin ran for president, he said right at the beginning, he said that 
you know, that it was a tragedy that the Soviet Union collapsed, that he described himself at times as a Soviet person. It was rather interesting the way he depicted himself uh, domestically. And of course, there was his first state visit to Cuba, which I think happened a year later, in which a, a Cuban journalist asked Putin, are you a communist? And Putin's answer was very strange. He said, call me a pot, but heat me not, right? Okay. So, I mean, when you add all these things up together and you, you look at what he did in, in the year 2001 was the 60th anniversary of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. And people can go back. Hitler, uh, Putin made a speech on June 22nd of 2001 to the Russian people, which was for, for the 60th anniversary of the Soviet invasion. People can go and look up the speech. And he said, in this, he compared NATO to the Hitler fascist alliance. And he said, they invaded us then and they're preparing now. So if you think Putin's rhetoric that, and this is for any of these NATO expansions that, 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 you know, that included former Soviet republics like Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. He was basically depicting the West as fascist and Hitlerite very clearly in the speech. There were people, you know, some analysts noticed it and were kind of disturbed, like, what does this mean? But they weren't following tea leaves going back to Galitzin, going back to Shana, going back to Bittman and other defectors. There, there was, and, and see what, what went wrong. This is the interesting thing. I knew a, a KGB officer who wanted to be a historian. He wanted to do an oral his, history of the Soviet Union. His wife was a historian, Marina Kalashnikova. And what she told me, his wife told me, was that, that it was essentially still communist uh, under Putin. And that they were, I asked her, why is Putin aligning with the Chinese, which I could see was going on, you know, 15 years ago. And she said, because they're all communists. Huh. That was her answer to it. Well, there's a couple of things, Jeff, that I want to make sure that I, I hear your take on. But I mean, one of the tells to me is the fact that he has gotten, gotten along famously with Cuba. He's gotten along famously with Nicaragua under Ortega. He's gotten along great with Venezuela. I mean, what is the difference between yeah, the relations? Troops. There's Russian troops in Venezuela, Russian anti-aircraft troops right now in Venezuela. And uh, the last two years, he gave 20 to 25 million tons of grain to Cuba every both years. Sure. And another tell, and, and you can speak to this with a lot more authority than I can, but I've heard from several sources that he's pretty much restored Stalin to his place as the great uh, white father, or whatever he called himself during World War II, you know, in the in the history, in the culture of the people in Russia. Yeah, in a subtle way, not entirely, because that's a difficult sell, and he has to be careful. Putin is a politician who portrays himself as different things to different groups and different people. So he'll go before Western, Western conservatives and depict himself as a conservative nationalist Christian, right? When he when he when he met George W. Bush, he kind of you know showed his showed off his cross, right? That he that the, implying that he was a Christian. Later in Bush's memoirs, Bush admits, "I was a fool. The guy fooled me. The guy was not what he portrayed himself to be." George W. Bush was 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 very clear on that in his memoirs uh, because George W. Bush said, "Well, I looked into his soul. You know, I saw he was a well. He, Bush was just being fooled." It was a very embarrassing moment, it turned out, for him, because he had to find out the hard way, especially when Putin invaded Georgia in 2008. I, I, I'm not going to give him, by any means, a complete exoneration or a plus historically, but I remember when John, John McCain said, well, when I looked into Putin's eyes, I saw three letters. <laughs> KGB. Yeah, well, John McCain, you know, who has a peculiar history as a prisoner in Vietnam, and who is who many who were in prison with him in Vietnam have told me privately, I have the tapes of my interviews with them, that they suspected he had been recruited there. I've had one of those conversations myself. Yeah, they, they were holding blackmail over McCain. I think that there were, I have a theory about why McCain picked the Alaska governor, Sarah Palin, to be his running mate. I think it was his insurance policy that they wouldn't out him, that, that they'd get her as president. So that was my, my guess. But McCain was had many of the features of someone who was recruitable psychologically. And I, I learned this by talking to psychiatrists and by doing some reading 
uh, by talking to psychologists rather and doing some reading, that there were disturbing features to McCain's personality. And of course, it's very interesting that the Democrats insisted on giving McCain this this very peculiar state funeral for a senator, uh, very honoring this Republican why these left wing Democrats who had these communist connections. But what's you know, and I'm sure your audience is suffering from severe cognitive dissonance listening to me because, well, wait a minute, Biden and Obama, they're all anti-Russia. And and Trump is, you know, they were accusing Trump of being a Russian puppet. Look, don't let the little twists and turns of the deception fool you. Right up into 2012, Obama and Clinton and Biden and all those people were best friends, best buddies with the folks in the Kremlin. I can only think of the phrase Uranium One and yeah. some, some of my friends in Southeast Utah that were directly affected by that. Absolutely. Uranium One deal that Hillary Clinton helped to, to arrange. Uh, and also the, um, the, the Russian Silicon Valley that we gave billions to help set up, which really didn't come off very well. Goodness knows where the money really went. And, and of course, all these tech transfers that we gave to the Russians under, under Obama. But what's really funny is that Hillary Clinton goes to St. Petersburg, I think it was July or August of, of 2012. She goes there. She suddenly goes into a side meeting for two hours alone without a translator. This is highly improper. Without a translator with, and by the way, it was Henry Kissinger had previously done that sort of thing. Um, goes I'm... into a side meeting with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for two hours would not say what the discussion was about to her staff or to the U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFowl. It's in McFowl's, by the way, his his autobiographical account, which is really worth reading. I recommend Michael McFowl's book. I think he's a sincere guy. I wouldn't politically agree with him on anything, but I think he's a sincere person. And he was just baffled by this one-on-one -on -one meeting between Lavrov and Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State to our meeting, and it was after this meeting, and and that this relationship started to change with Russia. And then when John Kerry came in, and he went to the Kremlin in May of 2013, met with Putin, and then spent again two hours alone, no translator, with Sergey Lavrov, came back, and then all of a sudden, all at once, almost like they were a dancing troupe, all the Democrats and all the people on the left just turned at once, and they were anti-Russian. Whereas before. In March of 2012, you see Obama caught on a hot mic with a camera talking to President of Russia Medvedev saying, you know, tell, you know, tell Vladimir, you know, Vladimir Putin, tell Vladimir, you know, I need to get elected one more time. So, but I, but I, I, and then I can be flexible, right? On the arms control talks. Totally. Yeah. Right. This is something that you can't deny. These are facts. And so the complexity here is a deceptive, there's deception going on. You can't take anything at face value, not the fall of the Soviet Union, not any of these other events. And what this, this disgruntled KGB fellow told me about the fall of the Soviet Union was that what really went wrong is that they didn't end up controlling Germany the way they thought they would. They ended up with the Soviet armies, the, the um, collapse of this, of, I mean, the unification of Germany was supposed to take several years and it took one year from 1989 to 1990. And there were assassinations and there were defections from the top levels of German intelligence. And there were all kinds of things that didn't go the way the Russians and the KGB thought. And as a consequence, that the Russian armies, the Soviet armies in East Germany found themselves on the territory of a NATO country where their technical people that kept the army together, their, their, their people with the most advanced training and education that it helped keep the technical weapons going, they'd step off the base and defect because they could make more money going over to Germany or going over to the U.S. And so the army quickly was losing its ability to function, the Soviet army. And the commander of the army said, hey, in a few weeks, this army is going to be dysfunctional. You want me to just attack the West? I can do it. And Moscow panicked and took his tank drivers away from him. This is a told story which which later came out as some enterprising Russian journalists got the information. But yeah, yeah. So there's this untold, we really don't have the true history of the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. No, no, we do not. We do not. And it's, and I want to go into this more in a future episode, but this whole psyop that's being played on the right wing right now about Putin and uh, his relationship 
with us, his relationship with Western morality and Western values, his relationship with the third world. I mean, there is just so much that can be easily deconstructed and, and no one has done a better job of it, Jeff, than you. But it is sorely needed to be done in great detail because there are a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. Well, That's you know, Machiavelli wrote in The Prince that if you want to achieve great things in politics, just deceive people, trick them. And they're easy. He, he wrote, a deceiver will never lack for dupes because everyone sees what you appear to be, fewer in close contact, and know what you actually are. And those few dare not gainsay the many. That's an exact quote from The Prince. And this turns out to be the truth. Useful idiots, we used to think of them as being people on the left, the naive liberals. Uh, but now we've got, we've, it just shows conservatives are just as capable of being useful idiots as people on the left. Well, well, well we go back to the Reagan era, Jeff. Let me interrupt, but yeah. I, I, I cannot help but think of the ongoing and continuous victory lap that the Republicans took over this so-called end of the Cold War. That, that that wasn't on any level. Well, I I was has been have been nauseated for almost thirty years watching Sean Hannity bra brag about Reagan winning the Cold War, and then and then to have Sean Hannity now admit that communists are threatening our country. I mean, if we won, how can we be? How can our nuclear arsenal be obsolete? And the Russians are are building new nuclear weapons, and the Chinese are building nuclear weapons like sausages because they got the breeder reactor technology from Russia. So we're rapidly being, the nuclear balance is rapidly shifting against us now. And the military balance, Russia is going to take back Ukraine, and that's going to be the reformation of the Soviet Union. Many who are studying Putin think that he's going to Berlin, that he's not going to stop till he gets there. So uh, it's, it's bad. And we, we're just full of communist agents of influence and Russian and Chinese agents of influence here. We're paralyzed. We literally cannot pursue uh, a, a sound defensive policy in the United States because in both parties have been sort of captured by agents of influence. Yeah, well, yeah, I want to get into this in more detail, but we are about to run out of time here. But uh, the fact that in the early 1980s, if you look at Claire Sterling's book, for example, and now I'm forgetting the name of it, but every one of the so-called terrorist groups coming out of the third world, every one of them were heavily involved with and I, I will say controlled by the KGB. And these relationships did not end after the magical end of the Cold War, so to speak. So all of those threads continue to this very day. Whether yeah, of course. Broadway or the Mideast or wherever. Yeah, and of course, Claire Sterling wrote the book on uh, Mehmet Ali Ag Ag that uh, shot the Pope, right? And he was from a right-wing group but it shows how these right-wing, you know, the year of the assassins in Turkey, this, these right-wingers had these connections to the Turkish and Bulgarian mafia, mafias to Soviet intelligence, to Bulgarian communist intelligence, and that this was being manipulated so that in, in Turkey, for example, both the right and the left were being manipulated by the KGB. And so this, this game actually that's becoming very strong here in the U.S. today has always been a subtext in different countries, like Argentina, for example. And the Peronistas, yeah. So, so summation, Jeff, if, if you can, a couple minutes. And uh, Well, everything you know is wrong, basically. No, no. Not specifically. But not you specifically, but I mean the audience. I mean, I can't hardly begin, yeah. I can't hardly begin to... The thing is, once you get... Once they pull over one lie to you, then you are one step behind in understanding the world. But once they have put down a pattern behind you, you are now groping in the dark. And this is what I find when I listen to most political commentary left and right. Just about everybody's groping in the dark. And if they just went back to the defector literature and the methods used by the KGB and the, the reality of communist subversion, going back to the 1920s in this country, uh, going back to the, the first Red Scare, when the communists blew blew up the house of the attorney general of the United States, uh, so it 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 people don't know their history and they don't know strategy and they don't know about this, and that's why they're lost. Yeah, and that's why I feel you know we could just go right into uh, talking about what's happening today, but there is a, a lot of context here, and and we just scratched the surface uh, with you of that today, but I'd like this conversation to continue if you're 
up for that. A couple more episodes. I, you know, I want to talk about the relationships uh, with the third world, with China, with the globalists that we have running around, and in Latin Islam. Mark? We should definitely discuss Latin America. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so my name is Lou Moore, and we've been talking to J.R. Nyquist. And if you go on Amazon, there is a number of books that Jeff has written that are available for sale. And Jeff, and your most recent book is? Well, The Fool and His Enemy and The Lies We Believe In. Sure, yeah. Available on uh, Amazon. I've read The Fool and His Enemy, haven't read the other one, but it looks like one that needs to be looked at carefully. Jeff, we're very appreciative to have you here today. This is called The Hour of Decision, this show, and indeed it is at this point in time in America. My name is Lou Moore, and this platform is called News for America, where we are trying to give you the best information possible to help you make the decisions you need to make in your life in this perilous time. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. You still there? Yeah, I hope I didn't lose you too many listeners because a lot of people are just going to switch off as soon as they hear what I'm saying because they're not going to buy yeah, it. Yeah, you know, and I, I struggle, Jeff, because I'm used to talking to you uh, just on the phone. And God, I just love to listen to you go through and wander all over. But today I was trying to keep us on some kind of a track and I didn't mean to interrupt you so many times. No, no, it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. It's good. No, I... Just uh, such great stuff. It's really, I mean, where do you begin to explain the lost context, all these details that are missing, all of the testimony, all of the different stories, the different, you know, a lot of the authors that I quote, they don't even realize where they're, how important their information is and where it plugs in. Yep. They don't even understand how important they're, they've got pieces to this puzzle because they don't, you know, just because you created, found a piece of a puzzle doesn't mean you know any of the other pieces. Yeah. Yep. And it was my thing to find all those pieces. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Jeff, what I'm going to do, if it's all right, is I'm going to kind of ponder upon what we recorded today, come up with another outline for the next episode, make sure you're cool with it, and then let you set up another time to do this again. Okay. That sounds good. Great. Really appreciate it, Jeff. Okay, Lou. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Okay.